Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time, and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even a soul. And now, your host, John King. Welcome to episode 610 of the World's Greatest Writing Podcast, or something like that. On today's show, I share interviews with the journalist Rebecca Renner, whose book Gator Country, I can confirm, is a masterpiece, and with the poet Major Jackson, whose selected works Razzle Dazzle certainly dazzled me. These two interviews took place, yes, during Miami Book Fair 2023. And if I haven't pointed this out in the last six days, the amount of literary talent walking around and reading at the fair is deeply intoxicating. Last weekend, here in Orlando, I participated in another doubleheader event, In Buzo Veritas 2, featuring poetry by Diane Turgeon Richardson and starring myself, and the book launch party for Tom Lucas's novel, Research Randy and Grandma's Half-Eaten Pie of Despair which he and I discussed on this show back on episode 600. If you didn't make it out to that evening, held at the historic Kerouac Project of Orlando, videos of both of those events should be available soonishly on the Drunken Odyssey's YouTube channel. By the way, the Drunken Odyssey has a YouTube channel. I am preparing for the Drunken Odyssey's next video, a review of more coloring books and discussion with three of my friends because apparently coloring books are a thing I do regularly now that I need to budget for. But enough of that. Let's get to the interviews. And now, the interview of the day. My guest is Rebecca Renner, who is an Orlando writer. Yeah, I remember knowing a few years ago slightly, and then you went off and did very exciting things and then came back. I didn't actually leave. I was just in Orlando, not talking to anyone, I guess. (laughs) I accidentally saw you less for whatever reason. You're the author of this book-length work of journalism called Gator Country, Deception, Danger, and Alligators in the Everglades. So I'm impressed by the few years that you seem to be outside my orbit. You have a creative writing degree from Stetson? Yes, I do. And so I'm fascinated because their program, I think, is a very unusual, interesting program. And I'm also fascinated by the prospect of you're now a journalist published in the New York Times, and that somehow came out of what you were doing at Stetson, or not. (laughs) I think it kind of did, and it kind of didn't. The best thing about the program at Stetson is that, at least while I was there, you could just do what you wanted. You created your own path, and they would help you figure out how to be the best version of you. I was writing fiction. I still write fiction, but I also enjoy doing journalism and discovering things that actually happened. 
I was already starting to get published with journalism while I was in the program, but I think it helped give me confidence more than anything to go for the big things that I wanted to do because that was the vibe of the program. I was with all of my friends and I'm still very close with a lot of the people from there, a lot of the poets who are cheering me on and as poets confused by all the press and all the things going on. Several have said they're living vicariously through me. Well, in a decade or so, many of those poets probably will be writing memoirs. Yes. That's my guess. Yes, hopefully. Excellent memoirs, I'm going to venture. Poets write great memoirs. Well, you do use some novelistic techniques Mm -hmm. in this. So this is kind of a giant book-length profile of this sting operation meant to capture poachers and part of the environmentalist efforts of law enforcement. And it was a story that was elusive. No one seemed to know who was at the center of it. And then all of a sudden, you got a whole lot of access and information. Yeah, the main character is Jeff, who is a a wildlife officer. And he went undercover in the sting with Florida Fish and Wildlife. Like deep undercover deep undercover. He completely changed who he was. I think some of the reviews have said that there's method act. I think that that is very true. He went fully into this. I think one of the interesting things is I got to know him so well that I realized we have a lot in common. And one of the things that we have in common is that we're both sort of perfectionists. We have sort of our own mental rubrics for the right way to do things and how the best way to do things. And I think for both of us, those differ wildly from the adequate normal range (laughs) of how everyone else does things. So when I say he went undercover, he transformed physically and mentally and spiritually even. This changed him. And I also went whole hog into researching the story and, and going into the Everglades and learning everything I could about place, people, setting, everything so I could render it novelistically instead of just dry facts. And one of the things that you do as you sort of explore how he so passionately devoted himself to environmentalist efforts, I say environmentalist efforts, that almost makes him sound like an activist when he's more of a a soldier. (laughs) But I want to say radical sense of being part of nature, not just I think it's one step to go, okay, the Everglades, it's yes, it's a swamp. It's also this extraordinary miracle that needs to be protected and is really important, despite the fact that it's in Florida. No, it matters a lot to go beyond that to feeling it, which I think is a valuable feeling to have. But I also think it's more uncommon. And in order to convey his convictions and the convictions that you seem to share, you do a novelistic trick, which is you go inside Jeff's mind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm expecting that partly came through in interviews and partly that came through your imagination with probably asking Jeff, am I way off? It's mostly things that he said. I'm glad you asked about this because nobody else has. And I almost expected people to be like, you can't read this man's mind. I was wanting that that conflict. (laughs) Yeah, I can't read his mind. But so I found that while I was interviewing him, he loves to read. He reads widely. He was already telling stories as a narrator would, and he almost knew exactly what would develop a scene more. And he would say something that happened, and then he would stop and go, and I thought, and he would give me exactly what he remembered thinking. And so before I had to ask any questions about his mindset, he had already given me all of that. 
So I know I knew I could go deeper. And that's how I was able to do the free and direct discourse. And I think you can tell that sometimes it goes into my voice. And so I'm sort of embellishing the verbiage of those thoughts, but they're still thoughts that he had. And that's why I'm from third to first. Yeah. And that's why I'm a really present narrator. I wanted it to be clear. He had these feelings, but they're like, I am the narrator. I'm hoping that that came through and was clear. That was fun to play with for me because I I think that I don't know of very many other pieces of nonfiction that do that. And I think when I write, I want to try to push boundaries. If you're not challenging the status quo of whatever medium you're using, you're not pushing hard enough. Right. If this were a short profile, no one in journalism would say, yes, that sounds appropriate. But in a book length work where I think think you have the space to make your own rules. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like memoirs. People have to decide, okay, what am I doing about people's names? What are the rules I'm playing with so that the reader will know and can kind mm-hmm. of assess this I properly? I do think that there are some pieces of magazine journalism that'll sort of flirt with the concept a little bit. Outside Magazine does this a lot. I think that's maybe what gave me the sort of courage to do it is because there are a lot of pieces in the genre that I'm writing that sort of dance up to that line. So, Well, <laughs> the question, I forget if I even asked it as a question. I may have just made a statement. But yeah, that very creative aspect of sort of going inside Jeff's mind. One, it sounds like you lucked out with an interview subject because a lot of people, when they narrate stories from their lives, it doesn't necessarily line up like a narrative. Mm-hmm. There are people who are great storytellers and can just find the form of the story mm-hmm. when telling it. And most people, it would be a lot more uneven, even if there are brilliant parts to the story. So if I had to tell you 10 thoughts I had on the way here, driving from Orlando to Miami, I would struggle to come up with two. So it sounds like he had this really intense recall of just yeah, what he was going through. Definitely. I've also done profiles of and interviews of, of people in the past who were, I don't even want to say more reticent, but I've done a lot of science journalism where the sort of quote unquote main characters are engineers. And most of these guys are extremely brilliant, but I've even had some say feelings. I don't have feelings about this. It's science. And but like with clear feeling in their voice, I'm like, okay, I need to rephrase this question. So I've learned what I think are very good interviewing skills to get what I need out of somebody, even if they think that they don't have that narrative or can't tell a story like that or don't want to tell a story like that. And I haven't had anybody come to me yet and go, hey, you're putting thoughts in my head. Every subject is different. Even though Jeff was in some ways an easy interview, I think everybody is different to talk to. And he had... Once he decided to talk. Yes. (laughs) He was definitely reticent at first. And there was a good long while when just finding out who he was and where he was and how to contact him was not easy. He had gone really deep undercover and I couldn't find him and I wasn't even sure of his name until I finally got the agency to say, oh yeah, it's Jeff Babauta. I'm like, all right. So it's definitely the guy with all the phone numbers that are disconnected with who I can't find his address. But I eventually ended up finding him and... I think that every interview subject has their own challenges that I've had to learn how to work with. And the one that I don't feel bad about saying this because I've told this to Jeff, actually, is that he's great at telling stories. But if I ask him to go from point A to point B, I have to let him go to point 
K or Q. (laughs) I had to realize early on that even if I wanted him to go to point B, point K is so much more interesting. And that's where Mm -hmm. the story was. So I had to learn to take my hands off and let him go because he would tell me these phenomenal stories that I wouldn't have gotten out of him if I had been like, well, we're just going to point B. So I think that getting to know somebody a little bit helps a lot in interviewing because everybody has their foibles. And I've noticed that I also do the point A to point K instead of (laughs) B in my own speaking. So... That, oh, yes, I see the question you asked, but I'm going to answer the question I wish I were asked. It's not that, that it's, it's more like I've walked into the woods and there are several paths and I take the one with the most interesting way and I forget about path B, completely forget about that question and I continue going on my path to wherever the sort of light at the end of the tunnel is and once I reach it I go, where am I? <laughs> what am I doing here? What was I supposed to be doing? So if somebody's profiling me in the future, there's a point here. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of this investigative work entailed you driving around in the Everglades and a vehicle that was doing okay, had a lot of mileage, and not everything worked so, apart from the engine. Yeah. At my book launch, I joked, because several of the people at the launch have known me since high school, where I was... I think everybody in the high school has their claim to fame, and I was sort of known for car problems that I had created myself. Running over things and making things sort of come loose under my car, and one time I left my car running in the parking lot while I was giving a speech. <laughs> That was really special. I even remember the speech topic because of that. It was pathetic fallacy in The Grapes of Wrath. (laughs) You see, I have a very good memory, especially for ridiculous incidents in my past. And I'm a good driver, but I believe too strongly in my vehicles. And I put them through situations that they should not have to go through considering the types of vehicles that they are. So I drove a Honda Civic into the Everglades and through the Everglades and on several adventures in the Everglades. It did not have working air conditioning. And apparently Jeff was like, oh, she's not a normal journalist. That was his clue to that when he learned that I was going to the Everglades in a Honda Civic without working air conditioning. Yes, no, this person is tough and maybe a little nuts. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that might have been his thought. But my thought was sort of like, I, you just got to do what you got to do. I had to do my job. I had to get the book done. And I've been through worse than not having air conditioning in the Everglades. It turned out fine. There were some close calls, and there's one chapter that at one point was named, it was my favorite chapter name, so I'm a little miffed that they changed it. I'm sure it's it's all for the best. It was called The Everglades versus My Honda Civic, which I thought was funny. (laughs) I like that a lot. Yeah, but... I eventually, because of the money that I made from the book that the publisher paid me, I traded up to a Jeep. So now I have a car that will do the things that I put it through, theoretically. (laughs) How's the AC? It's working pretty well. Okay. I had that fixed and cleaned out over the weekend because I've (laughs) finally learned my lesson that I need to do preventative maintenance instead of I'm going to break down in the Everglades and I'm going to need to beat this thunderstorm to Naples or else I'm going (laughs) to have complete whiteout with no windshield wipers. So for people who think they know a thing or two about Florida and go, oh, let me read something wild about Florida. Okay, where's the Florida man stuff? Where's the Tiger King adjacent stuff? Mm -hmm. 
And I think Gator Country does an excellent job of providing that while deconstructing that and giving it a much more human context rather than simply, oh, yes, Florida, we have lots of gators. It's very wild. And we've got wild people as well. And people who are brave and maybe a little nuts, both in terms of trying to take care of these lands and also the poachers who as often as not, are not trying to harm the environment that they're in either, but they're also not willing to let their families starve. So I'm interested in what you were thinking in terms of as the book was coming together, because I know this was very much on your mind that the thing that's a big draw for this book and this story is also the cliche that people may just want to hear instead of the much more rich experience of the book. I'm a little afraid, honestly, that people just think it's a Florida man book. I don't know how to deal with that because that is sort of the tagline that starts out the description is to catch a Florida man, you have to Mm -hmm. become one. I almost feel like I'm making fun of not Florida man, but almost the people who think that Florida man is a real thing. And I think that was in my mind a little bit because whenever I see Florida man stories, I see that's the superficial. So that's what you get by just glancing at something and not really. Statistical minority of. Yeah, not really trying. And there's always a story beneath that. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of that came from my experience in the past seeing Florida man beyond the news and knowing that, oh, this person is messing with the reporter. Because that's really a time-honored tradition where I come from. I was actually researching a story recently for National Geographic, and I saw this in action because I was like, wait, this isn't real. No, it's just, (laughs) it's totally bizarre. A guy appears and is interviewed on the side of the canal for a a crocodilian-adjacent story, and then we get another guy interviewed nearby. I swear it is the same guy wearing a yarn wig. (laughs) And the second guy refers to himself in the third person. And at first I was like, this guy is literally nuts. And then I went back and looked at him like, he's absolutely screwing with the reporter. (laughs) And he is going to treasure this footage for the rest of his life because he tricked some bonehead into putting him on air in a wig right after they put him on air without a wig. They're just looking for a quick, awful, easy story. Yeah, it's bizarre. But when I first saw it, I was like, oh no, this is Florida man. And then I had to think about it and go, oh, this guy has the same chin and the same stubble. And that's not the same shirt, but is it the same shirt under the jacket he's wearing now? I think a lot of Florida man stories just require one or two working brain cells to sort of communicate with each other to see that something else is going on. I also think a lot of Florida man stories are, I dislike them frequently because it seems like the crime ones are the worst day of somebody's life. They're drunk or high or something, and this is their rock bottom. And everybody's making fun of that. I don't like the concept of that. It doesn't matter if they're in Florida or they're in Michigan or What's the difference between what long form and even medium form journalism can do and what a meme can do? Yeah. I think the my criticism, though, isn't the form. It isn't the short 
news story itself, it's the mimetic mutation of it, how people receive it and twist it and make fun of it. I think that that is a perspective that people need to really evaluate. Like, what am I making fun of here? Am I making fun of the state of Florida itself? There's plenty we can make fun of here. Or am I making fun of somebody who has really had a bad time and this could be their rock bottom and where they rise from but that's the thing that lives on. But also, going back to the book before I go too long on that tirade. Well, we are here for that tirade. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the, the things that irks me sometimes is when journalists come down to Florida and have this goofy adventure and go, oh my gosh, Florida man, Everglades, swamp, look an alligator. And that's all you get. And in that chapter where I am driving my, my Honda Civic through the Everglades, the form of it is a commentary on that story. The way it ended up set up is because if somebody else had been writing that, I think that that is the kind of story it would be. And then midway through, I'm hoping that people see the clear turn where I go, oh, I'm Florida woman here because I was the person who was acting like Florida woman. Spoilers, but the person I was interviewing was my passenger and my car, as we've talked about, was falling apart. And we got a, a whiteout of sand from the road all of a sudden blown on my windshield. And I was determined to keep going. So my first stupid thought was to roll my window down and keep driving with my <laughs> head out the window. And the guy I was interviewing just gives me this look. And I was like, Oh, I deserve that look. I am doing something very stupid. Florida woman in this what scenario to the is, is now me inside the car. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I need to not be doing this. I need to act like I have some working common sense and stop the vehicle and clean off my windshield with a rag. But it was fun to play with that because I, I think a lot of journalists would just leave the stupid stuff out. But I'm like, I'm okay with being the... <laughs> I, I wanted to be the butt of the joke there because I think that the journalists in general who go down to the Everglades need to be the butt of the joke for once. And so I was like, and even accept it, me as tribute. <laughs> have to be you at all and you're the least deserving it's still funny yeah nobody got hurt <laughs> even i sold that car so it lives on somewhere someone is driving that thing so one of the topics of this book is poaching and florida as this source of storytelling including the legends of poachers, a lot of which is invented by the poachers, some of which is appropriated from other poachers or mm -hmm. dead poachers, who they tend to view themselves as modern-day Robin Hoods, mm -hmm. which it's embellished. is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Central Florida in the Daytona area. My family has been there for a very long time to the point where I sort of laugh at people who say, oh, I'm third-generation Floridian. Like, oh, congratulations. Why are you bragging about that? <laughs> Okay. I also decided to stop sort of, I'll go on a tangent about this, honestly, because one of the points I sort of came to in this book was that Florida is one of those places where, in a way that I think is unlike anywhere else, anybody can come here and find a place where they belong. And I felt like I didn't want to keep saying how many generations I'm here for, how many generations my family has been here for, because I felt that it ran counter to the narrative that I was creating, that there are so many people in the book who have come here and invested themselves in Florida, that I don't think that because my family has been here for so many generations that I have any more value to give than they do. 
Jeff is a transplant. He's done more for Florida than I have. Who the hell cares if I've been here for nth number of generations? I don't give a shit. So (laughs) you told me I could swear, so I had to get one in. That's why I'm afraid people are like, oh, this is just a Florida man story because I stopped saying I'm how many generations I've been here because I don't think that that's valuable or as valuable as I once did. I think it's an interesting point because you do mention that in the book, but that's not a running thing other than your family tells a lot of stories Mm -hmm. and you tell this wonderful story about just deciding at a very young age, like, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a storyteller. And your parents were like, okay, yeah, that's what you're doing then. I'm very lucky because in both sides of my family, it's one of the acceptable career paths. And I did not know until entering writing circles that all of these people were telling me no one in their family was supportive of this. And I was like, (laughs) everybody in my family is encouraging me. There's so many people on my family who they didn't let me give them copies of the book. They bought the book. That is just one example of many how they're just so passionately behind me in my career. But to get back to the original question that you asked about storytelling and poachers, I grew up in a culture of the deep cracker culture is a storytelling Mm -hmm. culture. So I had already been immersed in this, even though I didn't necessarily have the words to describe it. It was just always something that was there. Everybody was always telling stories. So that background equipped me to be able to understand the stories that people were telling me, to see beyond the things that were the embellishments that other journalists might have seen as Florida man antics, or this person is lying to me, or this person doesn't know what they're talking about, because there are very distinct patterns in the way we tell stories and the things we include and why we say the things we say. And I think that there is a sub- set of those stories that are poacher stories. And part of the poacher story and part of the reason why it is adjacent to the Robin Hood stories is I honestly think that they are linguistically descended from them, but it's the same perspective of the Robin Hood stories came from a feeling of disenfranchisement from the land. The people who lived on the land could not use it. You could get arrested for hunting the king's deer or whatever. And the people telling these kind of stories in Florida feel the same way, and that's why they're occurring in these patterns. So a great deal of them are true, but they've also been shifted into the storytelling pattern of the Robin Hood stories specifically Mm -hmm. to show you who the bad guy is and who the good guy is and who you're supposed to be rooting for because Robin Hood was a poacher. I also think that that has gotten me into, put me in a place where for some reason people are asking me if I think poaching is bad. And I have to say, (laughs) why would I have to say something so asinine and obvious in a book? Of course, poaching is bad. But it's also more complicated than that. And I don't, although poaching, the act is bad, I dislike saying that any person or group of people is bad because I don't think that's good journalism. I don't think that's good storytelling. And poaching means a lot of different things. You take the wrong thing off the land. You may not even Mm -hmm. know. You weren't supposed to take it and that's poaching or gathering up dozens of alligators. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, well, let's talk about how bad it is and what it means for the people who are doing it and the people who come to understand, oh, this is actually really dangerous. There's so many wonderful stories in this book. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of the different points of contact you have to storytelling, your family's traditional stories and the sort of 
myth-building, though often factually accurate stories of the poachers and your novelistic techniques. And then you're just being an old school journalist and your ability to do research and provide historical context in a way that you make sure is entertaining to read and not homework. Yeah. In order to try and convey a real powerful sense of place, because I do think, okay, palm tree, alligators. Yeah. There's a list of four or five things that people think, oh, that's what Florida is. And it's like, well, it's got those things. They're important, but the big picture is has so many different elements to it. So I've read a lot of Florida books, and few of them get so much right and seem so... New isn't exactly the right word, but the perspective just feels very new. So I think that you were the perfect storyteller to tell this story because you have access to so many different traditions. So you could break a journalistic rule to make it better. Breaking a rule just to break it out of carelessness, right? That's not helpful, but... I think that's the thing about creative writing is you find the right rules to break. I've had this conversation with fiction writer friends and editor friends that the best stories in any medium are the ones that break rules. And one friend in particular writes short stories and she's talked to classes before and invariably always go, how did you get away with that? Why did they let you publish this? Not that it's good, (laughs) but we've been told not to do that. And she's like, because it worked. That's essentially her answer, because it worked. And I think that's part of the writing as exploration is that you have to try things that are sort of out of bounds. And but you also have to be able to see what's working and what doesn't. And a big part of that, I had a wonderful editor who really did magnificent things for this book to the point where I've seen wonderful literary things going back reading it that I was like, I did not intend for that to be there. But wow, that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) So this editor's name is? Her name's Bren. She's my editor at Flatiron. And she is a brilliant editor who deserves all the accolades and looking for a a new book to pitch her where I can break different rules. (laughs) Well, it's great when an editor can trick us into writing the best version of our book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Test us, but in ways that seem helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sort of sneak my own brilliance out of my head without me knowing it. And now for something that is not the last thing we just did. My guest is Major Jackson, who has just published, or recently published, his new and selected poems, Razzle Dazzle. This is such a remarkably fun and exciting volume. Mm. Uh, This is, as I just said before we started rolling, my first introduction to your poetry, and it's such a joy to be able to fall into so much of it when I realize, like, oh no, this is a kindred spirit. Mm. Because he's doing so many of the things. First of all, I recognize, okay, I love so many of the things he loves. At the party, it's like, oh, no, this is the cool person for me to talk to, not the, okay, and what about baseball in 1963? I I don't mind that you like that, but I I don't find much to work with there. So Razzle Dazzle, it's lifted from a line in the second poem, in the new poems in this. That's a poem that seems to be about the process of reevaluating your methods or maybe just your attitude as a middle-aged poet, trying to make yourself available maybe to old joys that you've put away. Would you read that poem? Sure. Making things. Suddenly, I had to skewer all my prayers 
and slow roast them in the open air kitchen of my imagination. I had to shovel fire into my laughter and keep my eyes from blinking. I had to fuss like a cook simmering storms. I had to move like a ballet dancer, but without the vanity and self-consciousness of tradition. I had to blur my scars so I could write into time and carry the sensation of walking like a morose and heavy American sporting a yellow ascot over Pont Saint Michel. I want to be all razzle-dazzle before the dark cloaked one arrives for a last game of chess. My font of feelings is a waterfall, and I live as if no toupees exist on earth or masks that silence the oppressed or anything that does not applaud the sycamore's tribute to the red flame, like the heat beneath my grandmother's heart, who never raised a ghost but a storm. So look at me standing on the porch, laughing at the creek, threatening to become a raging river. It's beautiful. Thank you. So, yeah, the academic in me thinks of, okay, the anxiety of influence. <laughs> As a young creative writer, mm -hmm. if you write in the realm of capital L literature, it's like a fancy party that your parents are giving. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, I have to make a good impression. And I somehow have to merge with all of history. And there's a certain point when all the pressure of that goes away because the anxiety of dying before you squeezed out a little more pleasure out of this life is way bigger than, yeah. oh, well, people like me as much as my literary forebears as people from a generation or two or hundreds of years ago. That's completely out of my hands. Even if you're solid for a generation, literary fortunes change over time, even for people who are in the canon. There are people who are in this little niche in That's the canon. Right. Yeah, to some extent, the Bloomian notion of anxiety as a writer and the weight of literature, big L, bearing down on one's practice, one's poetry. To some extent, I think maybe because this poem is part of a larger volume of assessing one's past, one's retrospective in a way, that looking back allows me to do several things. One, to assess what have I been doing over the past five volumes? What are my particular themes? But maybe even more importantly, what is the purpose of my art making of writing poetry. And to some extent, yes, art becomes a container ultimately of a selfhood long after the author is gone. There will be the biography, but what works am I leaving that will give some sort of window into my cares and my concerns. And so making things is, in a way, like many of the early poems in this New and Selected, is a reaffirmation and a recalibration of myself towards writing poetry. The razzle-dazzle is one in which there is the surface of the poems, and then there is, well, what's beneath the poems. I tend to think that they coexist together, and in order for me to take care of a reader, I have to create a surface that is going to be one in which they walk into this poems or walk into this volume and look around, read the poems, feel a sense of either connection or maybe quite possibly the world defamiliarized and thus made afresh and new in their eyes. But also I think there's that wonderful poem by Lucille Clifton where she kind of asserts her presence as a human being even in the face of great 
challenges, social and personal. Something has always tried to kill me, she says. I think this poem, making things, using early on the metaphor of cooking, which is maybe an easy route to talk about making art, but using the idea of our works, our memories, and writing against time in a way to make something that is long-lasting and without the self-consciousness of that tradition that we talked about, of entering into that tradition, claiming one's voice, claiming one's subject matter, claiming one's art. And knowing oneself enough to not have to build a foundation for oneself. (laughs) There's some epigram from Twain, who, in terms of literary legacy, is a mixed bag. But when he's charming, I cannot let it go. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. I think he said, in old age, it's like, now you're ready to get to work because you've, (laughs) you've sorted some things. So that you kind of go straight ahead. And I don't know, this is something I'm feeling a little bit as a middle-aged writer who's done enough writing, not enough writing to make myself feel like, oh, it's chill, (laughs) but enough writing to where I think back to how much attention I wanted Mm. through dynamic writing through Mm -hmm. cleverness Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how I think importantly when I went to NYU and they're like okay how about you tell a story instead of I wasn't a poet I was a fiction writer like why don't Mm -hmm. you tell a story instead of creating just this nonstop verbal spectacle without a story attached yeah like I think it was important but I also think I may have overcorrected and that now I'm so latched on to story that there maybe isn't enough room for the Mm -hmm. audience or me to enjoy the Mm razzle-dazzle. Some razzle-dazzle, I think, is important just to grab people's attention and also, no matter how serious a poem is, there has to be play. Yeah. When you're a young writer, you're also kind of elbowing your way. There's a certain brashness. There's also, we're starting out in an environment of other writers who similarly want to journey on the great adventure to becoming a writer, which is full, as you know, complicated emotional negotiations, one of which, why am I not a banker? I'm pursuing art. And it's even... Why am I so willing to be poor for the indefinite future? (laughs) There's those questioning the emotional sacrifices. And then at the same time, there's also, one does not want to be a poseur. One wants to kind of claim an authority as a writer. So some of that spectacle making is part of those kind of emotional kind of working through. What you're talking about, that moment where you can abandon all of that kind of tap dancing and exist in your own passion for the art, exist in your own questions. Man, that's an amazing moment to arrive. I have some very good friends right now who were writers starting out at the same time that I was starting out. But I just could not embrace the reach of their play because my work, I felt, was coming out of an urgency. I needed to create poems that would help liberate America from its toxic embrace of all kinds of isms. All the isms. (laughs) All the isms. I love that. Exactly. And they were engaged in the art from wherever they angled from. And now that we are all middle-aged, the questions that plagued me now plague them. And now my restlessness towards the art has me moving towards where they were. I want to engage in language and run through language for the purity of the sounds and the words and the possibilities of new forms itself. Not that 
I've abandoned those previous impulses towards speaking on behalf of multiple communities and speaking to some of the social and political crises. It's coming now from, I've evolved now to this poet who's equally interested in the full width of what poetry can do as an art form. That wasn't the case when I was younger. The way I see a lot of these poems, I have to mix a metaphor. It's like hearing a great song that works like one of those amusement park lifts that just lift you, <laughs> hurl you 100, 200 yeah. feet into the sky and then let you hang there for mm. two seconds. Mm. And those two seconds before you drop, it's like the view from up there. It's like, okay, I need more like Can an I hour that on my website? That was pretty good. That's an endorsement <laughs> from John King. <laughs> but it just sends me up so high mm. and I get to see so many things. And part of the joy of that, I think, has to do with the musicality of the work and the semantic uncertainty mm -hmm. so that you use metaphor, but it's not, okay, there'll be one metaphor in this poem. It's like, mm -hmm. no, it's going to mm -hmm. shift. Mm -hmm. And what the poem is about may seem to shift yeah. so that you yeah. cannot simply, it's not like, oh, we're just one lane here. No, this right. is a vista <laughs> of possibility. And yeah. yet there's something about the way the words are generated or selected that really holds it together. Yeah. It requires a sense of rhythm. Yeah. And it re does require someone to be mentally awake. That's right. To read them, you can't just, oh, yeah, they <laughs> print it. But if you do that, then to me, this is always the balance that I really struggle with mm -hmm. because I am wary of storytelling, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. that's what my degree is in, is mm -hmm. in storytelling. But stories lead to so many bad things. They lead to good things, but I don't think storytelling, the structures care mm -hmm. <laughs> about the end result. It's not like, oh, it naturally leads to good things, actually. Right, right. It leads to bad things as much as it leads to mm -hmm. good things. And mm -hmm. so... For me, uncertainty about the value and meaning of the story. Mm. I never want the reader mm. to feel completely relaxed, even though yeah. I like my characters yeah. and I want the reader to care. Yeah. But I also don't want them to go, and this is morally simple and, <laughs> and I'm just getting everything I need from the author. Like, I want there to be a sense of unease. And I sense what you're doing is with meaning, that there's a little uncertainty there. It's the vista, right. but also I think it's a, it may be which important can for be you to be a little unsettling. It, and which can be balance. very frustrating for a reader. I totally get it. And what you were talking about, the value, sometimes the value isn't evident in the immediate. Sometimes it might take a generation of readers to kind of come back and discover, mm -hmm. oh, look at this work and how it's applicable or these stories these poems look how they're it's applicable to how we're living or some of the questions that we face today and then it can go in the other direction right the very pertinent stories that are addressing the issues because they're topical over time they lack the force that they harness when they were first produced they turn into faded wallpaper i love that <laughs> <laughs> should have been a poet <laughs> I do write poetry. Oh, good. So during my brief time at NYU, I yeah. taught as an adjunct, right? I taught creative writing classes twice, and they had me teaching poetry and fiction. My first great humanitarian act was I stopped writing poetry <laughs> during my master's work before the MFA. But I then thought, well, if I have to make my students write poetry, I better write poetry. And then the upside is I could write bad poetry, and then <laughs> they will hopefully feel emboldened yeah. to give it a shot. But no, I, I do write poetry. and. Your metaphors are coming through. The a knock on my fiction, actually. Your parents, is, I'm I think too you much described literature. As, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> you know, I taught at Bennington Writing Seminars, and we have these mm -hmm. really kind of big public lectures given by both faculty and students. And often, if 
fiction writer's work can't contain that level of density that poetry mm-hmm. brings, often in the form of metaphor or conceit making. They were kind of publicly chastised. Meanwhile, the poets in the room are cheering. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> poetry demands certain awarenesses around aesthetics and fiction, as you know, also has its own kind of demands. I'm a fan when you have that kind of hybridity that happens, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the form of prose poems or lyric essays or fiction, not fiction, short fiction. I think it, it all works. And I think the human soul needs an entree. Going back to your point about the frustrations, or maybe not frustration, maybe it's been around the block a few times, so now you need to be seduced into the art in a way that makes it fresh for you. And after being a longtime reader, you know that that becomes even more and more difficult. Well, I do contend poetry is entertainment. (laughs) Now, I don't want it to be bad entertainment, right? but I also don't want it to be so far from the kingdom of entertainment mm. that it's medicine. I still believe in a common readership like Virginia Woolf, where it's like there are normal civilians who right. can enjoy reading poetry. I'm eager for that. I wonder what it's like for you working in this way, because a lot of it has to be really intuitive, mm-hmm. these semantic shifts and the sort of grappling while containing this musicality and this even when there isn't a strict meter nevertheless Mm -hmm. there's not an absence of meter there's a there there in terms of the form Mm -hmm. and ultimately you want the best experience for the audience Mm -hmm. or a strong one if we can't predict exactly what's going to happen on the other side but when you revise work that's intuitively creative like that What's happening in your mind? Sure. How do you make judgments about how do I improve what isn't perfectly rational? I had a teacher early on who said to the class, not just to me, write for your smartest reader. That's subjective. (laughs) But I will say my hope is to write for my most intuitive reader, the reader who brings a level of awareness is a they're inside their body to fill some of the music mm-hmm. i remember reading t.s Eliot's the wasteland and i could virtually hear the 1920s i can virtually hear the early part of the 20th century in that poem and a lot of it had to do to the meter now granted my ear is attuned to it because i've read books from that period listened to music from that period before It was jazz, it was kind of vaudeville and ragtime. Ooh, that Shakespearean rag. You can hear ragtime in the wasteland. So I think a reader who comes to my work is similarly going to hear the music of my youth, hip-hop, but also my reading. They're going to hear me, and this is the work of being an artist, is absorbing all that has, maybe not all, but various strains of tradition. And I think the quest for poets is to turn themselves, make it a lifelong, sustaining practice of absorbing as much art as they can. Poetry, film, music, the image of razzle-dazzle. I want to be all razzle-dazzle before the dark cloak one comes for a last game of chess. People who 
have watched film knows that's an immediate reference to a movie from Ingmar Bergman. You can almost see the cover of the movie. But the adventure of writing is one in which your reader is, you ask me, what am I thinking at that moment as I'm writing? Because I do want to kind of sustain the reader at minimum, entertain them at minimum, as you say, maybe even spark a shared memory or maybe create a bridge to that moment in time when Reagan was attempted assassination of Reagan. So many things, historical, mythological. And I truly believe that at some point, a reader is going to enter into that play, enter into that landscape, and some neurons are going to go off. And who knows where it might take them. It may be a spiritual experience. There may be, they may enter into the language and suddenly hear something that they hadn't heard before. I'm not an idea person, and I used to be a story poet. My early poems were anecdotal, often stories from my youth. So I'm a young adult writing, looking back, so memory was important. Now I'm trying to enter into the stream of making. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some ways... I think a poem is can be like a cartoon. I think of mm. Duck Amok. Mm-hmm. Daffy Duck is being drawn by an animator, and it's like, okay, just a whiteboard, <laughs> and the scenery keeps changing. But it's, yeah. in terms of making, it's like, okay, well, a poem can be about anything. Yeah. Your question, though, I'm not satisfied with my answer, because I do want to say there are, entering into the stream also means paying attention to the demands of the form as it's unfolding. So going back to your whiteboard, for an artist, that's going to be shading in a little bit more here. So there's the technical aspect. And I trust that as I'm working on the technical demands of the poem, whether that's lineation or line break or illusion or image making, or very self-consciously thinking about the entering into the poem, that first utterance and the last utterance, that last line, I trust that because I'm paying attention at that level, that all the other ethical, moral questions will work themselves out, as well as I trust that the reader is going to be pulled in, taken care of, maybe see some things that they haven't seen before because of the meticulous care of making. Is reading the poems in public part of the process? It is. I'm editing as I read. <laughs> There's maybe a handful of poems. There's a critic on your shoulder dazzle. watching the I audience. know, right. <laughs> Truly. There is several poems in Razzle Dazzle that are not their initial incarnation in previous books. Only a handful. And that's because I read those poems so many times. And I never read them as they were first printed. Just a handful, not a lot. I think of Robert Pinsky doing his poetry jazz Mm -hmm. work and how he had no qualms about just rewriting a poem to fit the music and just like, okay, this is pretty good, pretty well-established poem. And it's like, okay, but not for this. Like it needs to completely change or there need to be repetitions to match the song. He's such a good poet too and a great ambassador of the art and his work. Like many poets work, the music is first and foremost. And it's hard for people to understand that when we say the music, we literally mean, how can these words create a cadence of the body and a cadence of the mind? What is the flow? What is the rhythm? How are the words? What properties of the sounds that we are putting to use to create some sort of experience that is at the literal level, but also going back to the intuitive, that is at the level of of sound and body. Sound and sense is... Or sound and not sense. Or like, sound and... <laughs> uh, well, I think of there are songs I that I love. Yeah. And I'm like, let me turn the brain off so I don't hear the lyrics. Mm. 
Mm. Some songs just... Yeah, absolutely right. I don't want to vouch for that song. Whatever my value is as a human being, like I don't want to vouch. But musically, it's like there's no denying my response. Absolutely right. If you were to read the newspaper, in every sentence there is percussion and every syllable is a note. Whether we're aware of it or not, we can kind of fall asleep to it. I notice it instantly when I hear other languages, Spanish, Mm. Italian, Mm -hmm. which is why those were the rhyming poetic languages is because the vowels could repeat. That's right. A friend of mine, we were in a taxi just on the way over here. Every generation creates its own sets of values. And even though we can work very hard to pass down (laughs) those particular values, they may not last. And so the technology of the art will not reach readers. And she was saying, it's quite possible that the readers of today are not trained to hear some of what is most important to us as makers Mm -hmm. of poetry. And her concern is that we're going to be in tomorrow's dustbins as a result of that. And my response is, well, that's the challenge of keeping our air to the ground and not writing thematically towards concerns of this generation, although I imagine that can help. For scholars, it means who's written the latest theory that I need to know and how can I incorporate that into my research and my own scholarship. For us, it is hearing the sound. I'm going to go back to that, hearing the music. And it's more identifiable when you listen to the trends in music because certain idioms become more dominant on the airways. If you think about reading, collective reading as a kind of airways, that's what you're listening for. One, I need to be tricked out of thinking my thoughts. <laughs> I need to be in trance. It's like, no, walk out into this ledge. And right when that happens, there's so much joy when that happens. What was it Elliot talked about? Escaping one's personality? Yeah. Just, oh, let me hear what Major Jackson's thinking. Even that has to be trained in our schools. I don't think we are thinking about literature as as a place to enter into. It's always the utilitarian functions of poetry and literature. Hopefully, as we talk about the affirming aspects to our identities, our sense of communities, that eventually just the sense of, I can enter into this book and it doesn't have to be about me, doesn't have to be about the family or communities that I come from. It can very simply be about whatever. Well, reading Razzle Dazzle, I'm of two minds. One is, it's a relief not to be me. (laughs) And also, half the time I recognize, oh, but he's like me. And Mm. he's forcing me to see my own life in ways that are less depressing to me than when it's just me, kind of the Mm -hmm. hamster in the hamster wheel and my Mm -hmm. brain just cranking, thinking about all the crap I need to do this week. (laughs) But I guess I'm optimistic or maybe just fatalistic. I think if you write great poetry, some people will find it and love it. Yeah. And for me, that's enough. Yeah. We can try and deepen people's perceptions of poetry and what's going on and and deepen their appreciation. But if it's not fun enough for them to want to be in the room, Mm. lecturing people about it. No, (laughs) I agree. You need to get in that room. I agree. Yeah. Doesn't help. So I think I worry a little bit less about everyone else. And I'm quite selfishly glad I get to be here reading your poetry. Thank you so much. Well, that is the show for this week. I would like to thank Rebecca Renner, Major Jackson, Lisa Pally, and Miami Book Fair. If you'd like to write in to The Drunken Odyssey with questions or comments, the address is thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. 
Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of written goodness, including perfect advice from Dr. Perfect, heartbreaking comic book reviews by Drew Barth, music playlists by Stephen McClurg, reviews of cinematic masterpieces by Jeff Schuster, who is our curator of Schlock, and occasionally horror reviews by Dimitri Cockney. All right, until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. John. Pass me the bottle. Sailor Jerry, only you understand me. A while back, John King endowed the Museum of Schlock and tasked me, Jeff Schuster, with curating the bugger. Each week, I curate one more entry into this proud genre of film. I think. Truth is, I'm really not sure what schlock is, but my writing about it is... sublime. Read it every Friday at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler.